Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Nikos Zirayanis, Assistant Professor at Indiana University's O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Nikos recently published a paper with co-authors on a really important but underappreciated environmental topic, excess air emissions. In today's episode, Nikos will help us understand what these emissions events are, why they happen, and their impacts on public health. He'll also describe the significant data, policy, and research gaps that we need to address to better understand excess emission events and inform policymaking. Stay with us. Nikos Zirojanis from the O'Neill School at Indiana University. Welcome to Resources Radio. Daniel, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate uh, having the chance to be on the show. I've been a long time follower and fan of the podcast, and I'm very excited to to be joining today as a guest. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. That's that's nice of you to say, and and we're we're thrilled to have you. So um so you know my first question then, which is uh you know we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental topics, uh, whether at at a young age or later in life. So what steered you into into this uh, line of work? Absolutely. So I grew up in Athens, Greece, in the 1980s. And that was a time when Athens was one of the most polluted capitals in Europe. Uh, I also suffered from asthma as a child. So I very quickly became aware of the impacts that exposure to pollution can have on respiratory issues. Now, the 1980s was a time when, you know, at least in Greece, cars were still using leaded gasoline. Homes were uh, heated using diesel oil. So several sort of, you know, factors that would contribute to pollution. And I recall as an elementary school student, I would ride the bus to school every morning. And then at some point in the route, the bus would climb up a hill and there would be a direct view to the Acropolis about two and a half miles away. And there were days where the Acropolis was visible and other days when visibility was entirely obscured because of high pollution concentrations in the city. Uh, so that loss of visibility was you know, one of my first markers of pollution incidents. Um, so I was you know, pretty aware of uh, pollution-related issues early on. And then uh, when I was um, in undergrad, uh, I went to business school in, uh, in the Athens University of Economics and Business. At some point, I took an elective class in environmental economics, and I got hooked. Uh, so I very quickly realized that the business world was not really made for me, or I wasn't made for the business world. So after undergrad, I pursued graduate degrees in environmental and resource economics initially in Europe, and then in the U.S. at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, where I graduated for, uh, in 2013 with a PhD. Yeah, that's great. That's so interesting. You know, we've had several guests who talk about air pollution. Uh, people who grew up in Los Angeles in the 1960s or 1970s have very similar stories to the ones you just described from Athens. That's really interesting. In fact, I recall Neha Kanna's response uh, saying how when she was growing up in New Delhi, you know, she was also familiar with pollution uh, issues, one of your former guests. Right, absolutely. Well, um, Today, we're going to talk about a kind of pollution, but we're going to talk about a different kind of pollution, I think. Um, we're going to talk about uh, this topic of excess emissions events, why they matter, what their implications are for public health, and, and how policymakers might address them. So can you first kind of define this term, excess emissions events, and maybe give us an example or two that folks might have heard of? Absolutely. So excess emissions are violations of the Clean Air Act. They occur when a facility exceeds its permitted emissions threshold. And those exceedances happen during startup, shutdowns, or malfunctions. Uh, so from those acronyms, they, those emissions are often referred to as SSM, startup, shutdown, and malfunctions. Uh, so for example, 
we have substantial excess emissions that are released when, uh, for example, a hurricane is coming in uh, on the coast of Texas, and then industrial facilities have to shut down their operations because they don't want to be online when the hurricane strikes. So that's one case where we have large amounts of excess emissions. Uh, one example that listeners might be might have heard of, especially those listeners in Texas, and one that we mentioned in the in the paper we recently published in the Review of Environmental Economics and Policy, is the Intercontinental Terminal Fire in March of 2019. Uh, this was a fire that started in a chemical storage facility about 17 miles southeast of Houston, Texas, and lasted for about three days. Uh, there were several shelter-in-place orders that were issued uh, for nearby communities because of concerns of high levels of benzene from the release from the fire. Uh, and listeners can click on the link on the uh, on the website of the of the podcast and see an aerial view of the fire covering the entire downtown of Houston with a black plume of smoke. Uh, so that this was one of the most of the worst industrial accidents that have happened in Texas in terms of amounts of pollution released, about 7,500 tons of pollution released due to the fire. It got a lot of media attention, uh, state state media attention, and even some national media attention, although not as much as the recent uh, rail accident in East Palestine. Uh, other accidents are less visible. Other examples of excess emissions are less visible than the one I just described. For example, in uh, April of 2003, there was a lightning strike at the Total Petrochemicals Refinery in Port Arthur, Texas. This is a city on the border between Texas and Louisiana. So the lightning strikes, that causes the refinery to lose power, and now several emissions control devices will go offline. Within the next 56 hours, the refinery releases 1,300 tons of sulfur dioxide in the form of excess emissions. Now, to put this in context, that same refinery emitted about half the amount of sulfur dioxide through its routine operations over the entire year of 2003, about 700 tons. So within a very short period of time, the refinery's annual pollution doubled because of this uh, accident. Uh, and then usually what happens is that the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, the TCQ, which is the state environmental agency of Texas, reviews those accidents. And in this particular case, decided that no fines should be assessed because it sort of acknowledged the unexpected nature of the accident. Uh, one last example, just again to provide some more context here. In 2011, uh, again in a refinery in Port Arthur, in the Valero refinery, the employees were doing uh, some gas sampling. Um, and during that sampling, they realized that excess sulfur dioxide was being released from a flare over the course of seven months. So here we're talking about a seven-month-long undetected excess emission event that released over 2,000 tons of sulfur dioxide. Again, that's almost four times as much as the refinery released in that entire year from its routine, its permitted operations. In this case, the, the state environmental agency assessed a, a penalty of $2 million for that and for other uh, emissions events that the um, refinery had faced. So overall, excess emission releases can involve you know, highly visible accidents, like the one I described um, in the Intercontinental Terminal Fire, uh, that are very close to large cities, they are very visible, they, have, they release a, a large um, plume of smoke, although others might be a lot less visible, either because they happen in remote locations or because they involve pollutant releases from, uh, from stacks that might be you know, indistinguishable from routine uh, emissions. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, so you and your co-authors in, in the paper you mentioned, which of course we'll have a link to in the show notes, you note that many of these events don't actually get a lot of attention. Some of them do, of course, like the East Palestine trail development or the accident in Texas that you mentioned. Um, but 
what do we know about how common these types of events are and and why is it that that you think they might be underappreciated absolutely so those are um those emissions those accidental emissions happen very frequently in texas so in our work, um, and this is work with co-authors David Koninsky and Alex Hollingsworth, both from the Paul O'Neill School here at, um, at IU, we estimate that there is at least one excess emissions event in Texas every single day that emits at least 10 tons of pollution. And about three excess emission events per year, each emitting over 1,000 tons of pollution. On an average year, Texas experiences about 3,600 of those events. Uh, most of them are very small in terms of what they release. So less than the median excess emission event is releases less than a ton of pollution. However, their overall distribution is highly skewed. So the top 10% of excess emission events release the vast majority of total uh, pollution. Uh, so most accidents, as you mentioned, do not receive a lot of media attention either because um, people are not aware of them uh, or because they happen in parts of um, uh, of the country or Texas that have you know low population density, like West Texas, for example. Uh, now, I've been talking a lot about Texas because Texas is the only state in the country that has a very detailed reporting and record-keeping requirement uh, for those excess emissions. Louisiana and Oklahoma also collect data from facilities, but do not have something unique that Texas has, which is a 24-hour public disclosure requirement. So in Texas... Uh, facilities, industrial facilities, are required to report those kinds of excess emission events within 24 hours of occurrence to the TCQ, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, the state EPA, essentially. And then the agency, once it receives that report, immediately puts up the information on its website and makes that information publicly available. So each excess emissions event report that is uploaded has information on the date and the time of the event, how long the event lasted, what pollutants were released, in what amounts, as well as the reasons for the accidents and the steps the facility took to sort of mitigate the impacts of the event. Now, facilities, as part of the report, can also file for what is called affirmative defense. That means that they can make the claim that this particular event they faced was unavoidable, there was no way they could have prevented the event, and that the release of those excess emissions did not endanger compliance of the county with the Clean Air Act thresholds. If the TCQ accepts that claim and grants affirmative defense, then the facility cannot be sued in civil court for that accident. The state agency itself can still take enforcement steps, but the, the affirmative defense protects the facility from civil lawsuits. And in communications we have had with the TCQ, anecdotally we know that those affirmative defense applications are the norm um, amongst violating facilities. Now, other states require facilities to report excess emissions but do not keep systematic track of them. So I'll give the example of my home state of Indiana that also requires facilities to report excess emissions as part of their quarterly compliance reports. So these are reports that facilities have to um, submit and, uh, and the agency, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, makes those reports available online. So if I wanted to do sort of the same type of analysis that our group did for Texas, if I wanted to do the same analysis for Indiana, I would have to download each quarterly report from each facility across multiple years, then shift through the 400 to 500 pages of each report and find the page that lists the excess emissions releases for that facility in that quarter. Even then, 
I would only know the total amount of excess emissions over the past quarter. I wouldn't know the date when they happened. I wouldn't know the time when they were released. And I would also probably need half a dozen research assistants to sort of work on this for several weeks, if not months, to complete this process. So I would argue that, you know, while uh, Indiana provides information on excess emissions, the way the information is provided is not meaningful and does not allow for the data to be used for, for research. Uh, in Texas, on the other hand, our group you know, just submitted a public information request. We received an Excel file with all excess emissions data for the last 20 years by facility, by pollutant, by stack, uh, with specific information on um, uh, the details of each event. So that type of record-keeping system is something we argue in the paper should be incorporated across all state environmental agencies in the country. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really, really clear and good policy implication. I, um, you know, there's so many questions that come to mind as you're describing uh, this this policy framework. But, but I'd love to ask you uh, briefly about what we know about uh, the environmental and health effects of these excess emissions events. I mean, you mentioned the some of the pollutants that that have been emitted can be emitted. Uh, are there studies that have sort of looked at the consequences of these excess health events, and, and what do they tell us? Uh, so there have been studies in the atmospheric science literature in the early 2000s looking at sort of the uh, air quality implications of excess emissions events, but ours is one of the first ones to look at the health impacts of those types of emissions. So as I mentioned earlier, those are emissions that happen very frequently in Texas, uh, and they are often large in amounts, right? They represent a, a substantial share of permitted emissions, of routine emissions that happen during normal operations of the facilities. So for example, just to give a sense of magnitude of how big a deal these emissions are, we find that in Texas, volatile organic compound, VOC, excess emissions are about 7.5% of total routine VOC emissions, which is a pretty sizable share. And for for particular industries, that share of excess over routine emissions can be substantially higher. So, for example, for the um, uh, um, crude petroleum and natural gas operations industry, we have about 17% share of excess to routine emissions of sulfur dioxide. And then there's also variation across space. So in some counties in West Texas, for example, where we have a lot of oil and gas drilling, excess emissions of all pollutants are over 30% of total routine emissions from those drilling operations. Now, in our work, we've been able to causally identify the impacts uh, of excess emissions on air pollution, namely on ground-level ozone and also on premature elderly mortality, meaning uh, mortality amongst age groups 65 years and above. The reason we've been able to provide causal estimates is because those excess emissions are caused by unplanned accidents, so we can think of them as plausibly exogenous shocks to pollution. Right. So we have data over more than uh, 17 years. We observe months with and without excess emissions at the county level. Essentially, each of the 254 counties in the state of Texas acts both as a control group in months when we do not have excess emissions and a treatment group in months where we have excess emissions, right? So this quasi-experimental variation allows us to account for a series of county-specific unobservable factors that are time-variant, like changes in population, industry expansions, and so on. So we find that about a 10% increase in ground-level ozone concentrations, and these are increases in pollution that are induced by excess emissions, increase elderly mortality by about 3.9%. And that's a change driven primarily by older cohorts, meaning 85-year-olds and above. And that cohort actually sees an increase of 5.2% in mortality. 
to put this sort of in perspective, we combine those marginal estimates with actual frequency and magnitude of excess emissions, and we find that excess emissions are responsible for about 35 deaths per year on average in Texas alone for that age group of 65 years and above. Yeah, so really quite significant. Um, that's so interesting. I wonder um, also, you know, it, it seems plausible that there's a lot we don't know about these emissions, especially in states outside of Texas and maybe even within Texas if there are events that are unreported. Um, what do we? What, what are our known unknowns here? Like what are the things that we know we're probably missing? Quite a few things actually. Uh, so in our analysis and in our work, we've made some very conservative assumptions and we've made those assumptions so that we can make sure that we identify the true effect of individual pollutants on excess emissions. So for example, we've restricted our sample to emissions events that only release a single pollutant. So carbon monoxide or only VOCs or only nitrogen uh, oxides. Doing that substantially decreases our sample size. Right. So it's likely that the actual damages are a lot higher. And we have to do this so that we can provide a causal estimate from each pollutant uh, separately. Uh, in our analysis, we also use monthly mortality data. We did not have access to daily mortality data, which had we had access to that, that information, we probably could have produced a lot more accurate estimates of mortality. Uh, something we also did not do is we did not look at effects on morbidity, like asthma attacks or emergency department visits, where the literature in environmental economics has determined that you know there are very big impacts on morbidity from pollution. We were also not able to identify effects on PM2.5 concentrations. We only have uh, effects on ozone, and that's in part because we have a much smaller sample size of PM2.5 monitors uh, in Texas and many other states. So there are fewer PM2.5 air quality monitors in Texas compared to ozone monitors. And those PM2.5 monitors operate with a staggered schedule. So they operate only once every six days, once every three days. So that really compromises our ability to detect a, a causal effect uh, on PM2.5 concentrations. But that doesn't mean that that effect is not there. Right, so we see our estimates as really as a lower bound of uh, of health damages, as you mentioned, more and more importantly, right, we know nothing about or very little, I should say, about the um, the incidence and the magnitude of excess emissions in other states, right, and that's a very important limitation since other states might face similar and perhaps even higher marginal damages than those we we find in Texas. Uh, and finally, our work provides estimates on the damages caused by excess emissions. But we do not know what is the cost of reducing those emissions. So what in environmental economics we call the marginal abatement cost. It, that is particularly challenging to do for excess emissions because unlike other sort of routine emissions, it's not as straightforward as... So controlling routine emissions right, can be as straightforward as installing a pollution uh, and emissions control device. In the case of excess emissions, reducing them uh, would require things like investing in better maintenance personnel training, emergency response procedures sort of to limit uh, the size of emissions once an accident occurs, perhaps installing backup power capacity to avoid emissions during power outages and so on. So that's another uh, important sort of aspect of, of policy analysis that we, are, we don't have good information on. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I wonder, um, have you thought about using those like... Uh, Purple air monitors that are distributed pretty pretty extensively. I was just looking on the purple air map, and it looks like there's a bunch of them in Houston. Not very many in West Texas, though. Absolutely. Uh, 
the use of purple air monitors has received a lot of attention uh, in the literature and also from EPA. There's an issue with those monitors in that, you know, they are not as accurate. I would say, I should say, they are not as nearly as accurate as regulatory uh, monitors. But in this case, you know, what we lose in accuracy, we gain in density. Because as you said, there are a lot of them, uh, particularly in, in, in cities like Houston and Dallas. So definitely that's within our, uh, our future scope of work to try to incorporate that additional information and also information from satellite images, which can be very useful here in order to, to close those gaps um, in, um, in information on, on air pollution. Right, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I was actually just out in the Permian Basin a couple of weeks ago on the New Mexico side of the border, and I was talking with someone about air quality, and uh, they were. We had the same conversation about the uh, you know trade offs of of using cheaper uh, sensors with uh, with slightly less accurate measurements. So uh, another question uh, that I'd love to you know hear your thoughts on Nikos is uh, is about policy implications. I imagine our listeners have thought of several during our conversation. You've already mentioned one important one, which is reporting. Um, are, are there other really important policy implications that you would draw from this work? Absolutely. And perhaps it might help if I provided some background here because, and that's something we discuss in the paper, that, that there are non-trivial sort of, there's a non-trivial policy debate around how those emissions are being regulated. So for decades, those excess emissions were literally flying under the regulatory data, uh, ra- radar, excuse me. Uh, so the Environmental Protection Agency was aware that those emissions were happening. And more importantly, the EPA was aware that states had provisions in their state implementation plan. This is the plan that uh, the state plan that details how a state achieves and maintains compliance with the Clean Air Act. So those SIPs, those state implementation plans, had clauses that violated the statute. So states were offering loopholes that eased enforcement on facilities that released excess emissions. Uh, examples of those loopholes are automatic exemptions, the affirmative defense provisions I mentioned earlier. So this was happening for decades, and it was not until 2011 when the Sierra Club, a nonprofit environmental advocacy group, filed a petition arguing that several states uh, included language in their SIPs, in their state implementation plans, that was not in accordance with the Clean Air Act. In response to that petition, the EPA asked 36 states back in 2015 to revise the language in their SIPs and remove any language that was in violation of the Clean Air Act. Now, this happened in uh, 2015. States, Those 36 states had until November of 2016 to submit the revised SIPs. November 2016, as listeners will remember, was a a change in the administration. Uh, We had the Trump administration coming in, and many states did not submit revised SIPs. Uh, In fact, uh, several EPA regional offices during the 2016-2020 period, and eventually the EPA administrator, administrator himself, Andrew Wheeler, issued a series of memoranda allowing enforcement exceptions to go back into SIPs. And this was a time where our group here at O'Neill, we tried to you know, be very active in voicing our concerns about those deregulatory moves that we were concerned would increase the incidence of excess emissions. So we wrote op-eds, we wrote public comments, public comments against those deregulatory uh, rules. We presented the work to the EPA, uh, we wrote a memo to the EPA administrator, and thankfully, uh, the EPA recently reinstated the 2015 SIP uh, call, asking states to bring their SIPs in line with the Clean Air Act. So it's important to give credit to the agency and acknowledge that uh, the EPA has recently taken uh, steps in the right direction on closing those regulatory loopholes um, that could increase excess emissions. Now, that said, there are still states around the country 
where we know very little about the incidence of excess emissions. So I gave the example of my home state of Indiana earlier. Uh, and in our most recent paper, we argue that the EPA and state agencies need to develop a detailed reporting and record-keeping system similar to the one that Texas has, right? Because without that kind of detailed information on the incidence and, and the magnitude of excess emissions, we cannot design effective policy. We cannot know what the true health impacts are. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. I was wondering, like, when you were describing the lengthy documents that one would have to review from the state of Indiana, whether there might be a role for artificial intelligence in helping sort some of this out. But that's kind of another conversation, maybe. And we've actually gone down that road with not a lot of success, but ah. <laughs> maybe other <laughs> other colleagues in the field might might be might do a better job on that. Because exactly that a sort of web scraping and artificial intelligence would be, could be very useful in sorting through those, you know, hundreds or even thousands of documents. Yeah. Interesting. Um, great. Well, a couple more questions I'd love to ask you, Nikos. You know, uh, this topic, you know, it's been in the news uh, over the last couple of months, you know, because of the East Palestine train derailment and, you know, clearly a, a major excess emissions event there. I'm wondering if you think that that event in particular might lead policymakers to focus their attention more on this topic or whether you think it'll kind of fade from people's memories as these events sometimes do. So I really hope that uh, more attention can be paid on on this issue. And this is why I'm actually very appreciative of being able to be on the podcast today and uh, having a chance to discuss this. One of the issues that the East Palestine accident, I think, really highlighted was the need to communicate information to the public as accurately and as quickly as possible. Right. So people have the right to know if, when, and what types of pollutants they are being exposed to. And they, they need to know that so that they can engage in mitigating actions, right? They might stay indoors, they might run their air filters, they might choose to evacuate. So I think an important message to communicate here is that facilities should be 100% transparent with the public if and when things go wrong. And that those reporting mechanisms that are in place, you know, are there so that we can use them if we have to. Now, I'd say taking a step back and sort of looking at the bigger picture here, it's important to emphasize the, the health costs of air pollution Fortunately, there were no fatalities, right, due to the accident in East Palestine. However, there might be health impacts due to exposure that people faced. And it's important to remember that people die every day from pollution exposure, right? In 2019 alone, there's estimates of about 7 million deaths around the world. That's about 13% of total global mortality attributed to, to air pollution. And we often don't think about those deaths because air pollution is never listed on someone's death certificate as the cause of death. Right, So people die from asthma, they don't die from air pollution. People die from heart attacks, they don't die from air pollution. But air pollution contributes, uh, in some cases, very substantially to those causes of death. So uh, recently, there was the first case of a nine-year-old girl in London, Ella Roberta Kisidebora, that died from an asthma attack in 2013. And she was the first person ever to have air pollution listed as the cause of death on her death certificate. Uh, and this happened following a 10-year-long, excuse me, battle that her mother took on to specifically acknowledge that air pollution was the cause of her death. So it's important to continue, I think, to raise awareness on the effects of air pollution, especially since uh, air pollution is something we do not see, you know, we do not smell, but can significantly affect, affect health. And if I may sort of offer a, an anecdote from my life and as somebody that, that didn't grow up here in this country, I, I'm always amazed that, you know, how often like the simplest thing, like people will idle their cars, right? So I'll, I'll drop off my daughter at, at daycare in the morning and I'll see other parents dropping off their kids and they'll just leave the car running like the entire time they, they of drop off. And I'm thinking, would I ever do this in Greece? And I wouldn't because number one, you know, gas prices are about twice in Greece as they are in the US. 
And also there's parts of Athens where, you know, if you leave your car idling, you might actually not find it when you come back. You know, it, it might actually be not there anymore. So, Yeah, I noticed the same thing when I dropped my son off at, at daycare too. And even when the daycare administrators send everybody notes telling them not to idle their cars because it can exacerbate asthma, which my son has, uh, people don't do it. It is completely maddening. And even when there's a sign saying no idle zone right there on the parking lot, like just, you know, it's it's hard to 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 underscore how important that, that is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Nikos, one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, which, um, you know, you've highlighted how important this topic is for policymakers, but we also have a lot of researchers, of course, who listen to the show. So what are some of the things that you think uh, the research community can do to advance our knowledge on these uh, these issues? So in addition to the issues I mentioned earlier about, you know, things that we did not do in our work, uh, one thing that's important to note is that excess emissions do not appear on the National Emissions Inventory. The National Emissions Inventory is a large data set uh, maintained by the EPA that keeps track of all emissions uh, from large industrial facilities across the country. Now, this is important because <clears throat> several pollution models, several, uh, as they are called, integrated assessment models, rely on the National Emissions Inventory as a source of input for emissions data. And by not including excess emissions in the NEI, we are systematically underestimating the magnitude of pollution releases. So that's, I would say, a non-trivial issue that we need to correct from a research perspective. Uh, it will also be interesting to study sort of the impact of enforcement practices on the incidence of excess emissions, something that our group hasn't done yet and uh, could be done since Texas does take uh, enforcement actions against uh, uh, violating facilities. Unfortunately, this is something that can only be, only be done in Texas due to the data limitations I um, I discussed earlier. Right, right. Really interesting. Well, um, this is such fascinating work, Nikos. Thank you for uh, coming on the show and, and highlighting it for us. I hope people are, you know, uh, going to get more tuned in uh, to this topic and hopefully we'll have more data to work with in the future. But now I'd love to ask you the last question we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something uh, that you've read or watched or heard that you think is great uh, and that you'd recommend to our listeners. So what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Absolutely. So lately I've started reading um, a new book called The Big Myth by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway. And it's a very fascinating historical account of the intense propaganda and misinformation campaigns that were launched by multiple industries in the early 20th century. So manufacturers, electric utilities, and these were campaigns that tried to advocate against government regulation, uh, what the authors called uh, fundamental um, uh, market capitalism. Uh, and as someone that works in a school of public affairs, uh, and also as someone that did not grow up in this country, it's very interesting for me to learn you know, all those uh, types of information that people were exposed to in the 1930s and the 1940s that could have affected their perceptions about the validity and the uh, and the use of uh, of government regulation. So that's something I would recommend to listeners. Yeah, sounds really fascinating, and and I think people have recommended uh, Naomi Oreskes' previous work uh, as well and some of her some of her other books. Absolutely. Great. Well, uh, one more time, Nico Sirianis from uh, Indiana University, the O'Neill School. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Daniel, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. 
You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.